Great to be with you for another episode. In fact, it's episode nine of LifeWords Q&A with David Ray and G'day, I'm Andrew Morris. It's uh, our time together for 20 minutes or so where we can talk about life and faith and how they mix up in this crazy world of ours and to uh, to guide us through, to navigate us through uh, life and this journey. LifeWords author David Ray, thanks for joining us yet again. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. Okay, so today we've got three questions. We're looking at uh, the issue of gay marriage, uh, also the New Jerusalem, and why doesn't the church speak out more about what's wrong with the world? Okay, David, let's uh, start off with a topic that's highly contentious uh, at, at the time and has been for the last few years. Why do Christians object to gay marriage, and shouldn't we allow, I guess, gay people to get married, even if we might disagree with them? Well, first, Andrew, I think there's a very broad issue of the legitimacy of homosexual behaviour, not inclination, that's that's different, um, but homosexual conduct. Now, if if we think this is contrary to God's purposes, then we won't approve of any such practice, whether within a marriage or not. So the marriage issue is almost secondary to it. It's homosexual conduct that may be of concern. And so in that case, it wouldn't be a human rights or equality issue, but an issue that arises out of what is understood to be God's will in the Bible. If we think that God's will in the Bible is that that there should not be expression of um, homosexual uh, inclination, then um, we would not be approving of it, um, even if it was a matter of human rights or equality, because I think the Christian would then say, well, well, God's word in the Bible is actually more authoritative than any contemporary legislations on human rights um, inequality. But that's not to say there's no room in our society for gay people to perhaps uh, enter into what we might call civil partnerships. You see, we might have our own views on gay practice, but this need not lead to a deprivation of human rights or, or to excluding such people from society. That, that, that would be ridiculous. It's a pluralist society after all. And in a pluralist society like our own, we would not want to deny human rights or equality to such people, but we also, if we hold that particular view of Christianity that that, that God is condemning homosexual behaviour, then even though we might want to grant to people human rights and equality, um, we still want to reserve the right to say, no, uh, this particular expression of sex is not right. So what it means there is it leads then to this issue of marriage. See, the Bible suggests that marriage is between male and female, and so does the current law, incidentally, although that might change. So a gay couple getting married may not only cause problems for Christians because of their concern with homosexual activity, but also because it's a very radical redefinition of marriage. So I think Christian should be supportive of um, the human rights of, of, of anyone, gay or straight. That's, uh, but, but as I said, if our view is that the Bible condemns, criticises the homosexual behaviour, then uh, Christians would want to say, well, well we think that uh, any such behaviour is contrary to the mind and heart of God. And if we want to, we want to, if, if, if we're confronted with homosexual marriage, we want to say, well, not only are we got a problem with the homosexual conduct within that marriage, but we've got a bit of a problem with the state deciding to redefine something that the Bible defines rather differently. Does the uh, does the Bible in fact talk about the term marriage? 
it touches on it, and, and we've got to be very careful, incidentally, not to confuse our present uh, wedding and getting married culture with uh, what was happening in the Bible. In the Bible, obviously, getting married was a different, um, uh, it happened in a different culture, a different form. But yes, the Bible does talk about um, people being married um, and men and women coming together. Men and women were created um, sexually apart and they come together again in marriage. Uh, and that is how the Bible seems to um, uh, um, define the idea of marriage. Though a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. Now, the the M word, the marriage word, isn't exactly used there, but that's what is commonly understood it to, to, to be meaning. And so the Bible does talk about that. But yes, it certainly doesn't talk about the sort of weddings and the legalities of weddings that we have now. So that's why I, I, if, if, if the state, if the secular state, for example, uh, chooses to redefine marriage and say people can get married any way they like in any form they like, well, I think Christians can just say, well, uh, that's their prerogative to do so. But Christians might also want to say, but we also have a biblical norm of marriage, which may not be the same as the state's norm of marriage. So we, we do have an issue uh, with the state redefining marriage. But if the state did decide to redefine marriage as to include um, gays being married, well, it may be that, as, as has happened, I think, in the UK, that uh, legislation has to be passed to ensure that Christians, or Christian ministers particularly in celebrants, are not bound to um, offend their own consciences by performing such marriages. So is there a problem if, if, if that's the case? I mean, if, if, if it's just a case of we, we don't want to marry gay couples in the, the, the Christian institutions, can't we just, like, yeah, why, why can't legislation just be passed and we just go again, we, we go on and we're happy about that? Like? Well, well, there's two. Yeah, well, first of all, that, 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 that's quite a reasonable point of view, which, which many Christians hold. Um, but th- th- there's just two cautions about it. One is what I've already touched on, which is that Christians might want to say that, um, hey, secular society, governments, uh, yes, you have got the legislative power to alter the nature of marriage, but is it in fact uh, is it in fact a valid thing to do to redefine something that the Bible seems to define differently? The other problem that we've got is that that and this is also starting to happen in the UK a bit that some Christians uh, celebrants are concerned that there the law that that allows them as it were this escape clause is actually not going to be enforceable because it's going to be trumped by um, human rights law. Uh, so in other words, a Christian minister, for example, could conceivably be in a situation to say, uh, could, 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 be, could be taken to court uh, by, by someone to say, you are denying me my civil rights to get married in a church, uh, you must therefore uh, marry me in a church. And that will create all sorts of moral and legal and ethical issues. Now, it, that may never happen, of course, but that's one of the issues that some Christians might have about the law changing. Will the law changing to protect the civil rights, the legitimate civil rights of a gay couple wanting to get married, will that not necessarily trample on the rights of a Christian celebrant who may, in all genuineness, not want to perform such a marriage? And that's a much wider issue of just whose whose rights are more important and can the law, in fact, um, protect everyone's rights. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A. G'day, Andrew Morris and David Ray joining you each week. You can subscribe to the uh, to the LifeWords podcast through the iTunes store. Just search for Hope Media Limited and you'll find it there. Also at hope1032.com. 
bible.org.au. Okay, we move to our second question in this episode, and it's uh, the Bible talks about some sort of New Jerusalem coming at the end of Jesus's return, at the time of Jesus's return. What does it mean, David? And is it got anything to do with Jerusalem as we know it today? Uh, very short answer is no. I don't think it has. Although there will be other Christians who would differ on that, of course. And look, the Bible's full of pictures and images that are not meant to be taken literally, particularly in the Book of Revelation, because it's a it's a certain sort of literature that thrives on symbolism uh, and image. And this, I think, is one of them. You see, Jerusalem is not only a city in the Bible, but it's also a symbol of God's dwelling with his people and and that's that's um, particularly focused on the temple the temple was always seen as a symbol of god being with his people and the temple was as it were at the heart of jerusalem so 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 i think we need not imagine a literal city coming down from heaven but it's a way that that the um, apocalyptic writer was describing that of the new in the new heavens and the new earth god will truly dwell with his people he's already said that he says god is going to be with his people he's going to dwell with his people well how would the people in his day and age really think of that pictorially metaphorically imaginatively well it's in terms of jerusalem um, uh, and 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 the, the, it's it's not like the earthly Jerusalem that they knew, uh, because it was subject to decay and change, and of course was occupied by pagan powers at the time. But what I think the writer was saying there was not some literal city being dropped down from heaven onto earth, but rather saying in this new heavens and new earth, God will truly and always and perfectly be with His people in a way that we only get hints of right now. So uh, you're saying that, uh, how, how, how does it fit that Jesus returns and he rules for a period of time on this existing earth? Is that what we're seeing? Oh, well, look, um, uh, uh, there are many Christians who will have very different views on the book of Revelation. And there's there's what we call the post-millennialists, the pre-millennialists, the pre-tribulation millennialists, the post-tribulation pre-rapture millennialists, and, 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 and on and on and on and on and on. Um, I, I had a lecturer at college who said we should all be pan-millennialists. That is, it'll all pan out in the end, he figured. Now, look, uh, uh, there are many different views on this held incidentally by many fine Christians too um, uh, that, but and, and that leads to certain different views on the place of present day Jerusalem you see from, from speaking from my point of view the present city and the present nation of Israel actually are not very significant I'd say now other Christians will certainly disagree on that but you see I see it this way that the Jews as a race uh, we certainly know this from the Bible have a great future um, and it seems before the coming of Jesus. Somehow or other, there's going to be some mighty work of God done amongst the Jewish people. But remember, most Jewish people don't live in Israel. Uh, now, I'm not saying that Israel won't be included in that. Yeah. Uh, all I'm, what, what I guess I'm trying to say is just be a bit careful about identifying the present political entity of Israel with what the Bible calls, it, calls Israel, which is more to do with the people of God. And the people of God, of course, are now the Christian church. But the Jews may well have a part in that in the future. I certainly wouldn't deny that. But I'd say just be wary of reading too much biblical prophecy into, the, say, the current happenings in the Middle East, because the people of God now embrace Jew and Gentile. That's very clear in the New Testament. Uh, and, and the pol present political nation of Israel, of course, dates back from 1948. Uh, and and, and I, 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 I'm personally not convinced, although other Christians are, that, that the present nation of 
of Israel is 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 um, highly significant in the biblical scheme of things. I think God's um, God's people as a whole, Jew and Gentile, are very significant. And yes, some interesting things might be happening with the Jewish people, and it may happen in the Middle East. But then again, it may not, as I said, because there's more Jews outside the Middle East than they are inside it. And and I'm certainly not saying, Andrew, that we don't take an interest in the in the happenings in the Middle East at all. But I'm just a little bit concerned with those who might want to uh, sort of look at the what's happening in the Middle East by correlating it with uh, some of the admittedly very complex passages of the book of Revelation. I think we might be drawing some mistaken conclusions there and it might lead us to think that somehow or other God is is simply always on the side of the present political nation of Israel. And I'm not saying he's against them, but I, I think it's always dangerous to say that any particular nation has uh, God on its side. Look, if a Christian wants to say, I'm really all for the Palestinian cause or I'm really for the cause of Israel, that's fine. That's OK. Uh, we can take those sides there because there's legitimacy for each. But but all I'd plead with is just be a little bit careful about uh, tracing your support for whatever side there is in the Middle East back to certain biblical passages, which, which, which are differently interpreted by many, many Christians. I don't think the book of Revelation was meant to provide a, a detailed map of um, history. Uh, I think this leads on perfectly to the third question, David, which is, uh, why does the church, or I guess the, we're saying Christians, speak out more about what is wrong with the world? So often it seems uh, that Christians are silent with their Christian view not being heard. Well, it's always an interesting, for many years, uh, in early days, I was writing a column called The Church Speaks Out uh, for a uh, local newspaper, and it was always interesting to me that I thought, The Church Speaks Out. What on earth are we talking about here? It was David Ray speaking out, and I can't possibly claim to speak for the whole church at, at all. Um, what are we thinking of when, when people say the church should speak out? Are we thinking of archbishops or pastors or superintendents? Are we thinking of individual Christians in positions of, say, political power? Or are we thinking of everyday Christians? Um, you see, when we say the church, is, should the church be speaking out, often I think what we're saying is, are the leaders of the church, our public figures, making public pronouncements about this or that issue? What I've got to say is just because we don't hear the Christian view being put doesn't mean it isn't being put. I mean, certain denominational leaders, I believe, are very active in speaking out against certain injustices and, and about certain issues, but it might not get reported. And, and that's not the fault of the media either. The media's got a lot of people to report and uh, I don't think the church is all that uh, important to them in many respects where we're fairly marginalised. And so therefore doesn't mean just because you're not hearing public figures in the church speaking out on something that they're not speaking out on something. They may well be. I mean, the media are only going to touch those hot hot button topics really at that, that time. Um, but I mean, the church has a long history of being a champion of slavery and education and the, the establishment of hospitals and mm. all that kind of stuff. There's a long history of the church being socially active, social justice kind of stuff. And as you say, David, I, I, I would imagine that the current organisations like Anglicare and Vinnie's and all those different social, uh, social arms of the church are constantly uh, lobbying and petitioning for, for more rights for the homeless and, and, and that kind of stuff. Oh, they are indeed. I, I, I do believe the church does speak out. I, I, I do believe. Now, whether, as I say, it's always reported as another matter. And also, may I say, incidentally, you mentioned things like Anglicare and Mission Australia and groups like this. Um, they do speak out, but often then speaking out not by making speeches and saying how bad such and such 
such an issue is, but they're speaking out by actually doing something, which is another um, aspect of it. I reckon, you know, that sometimes when people say, why doesn't the church speak out on this or that, um, uh, that, that perhaps, maybe I'm being a bit cynical here, but maybe some people are just objecting because why don't you condemn the pet sins that I hate or or indulging my pet prejudices. Um, some people want you to speak out on certain things because they're very angry about them and all this sort of thing. Why don't you say something about it because you're in the public eye and so on? And what I'd caution people about that is to say, look, yes, I think the church should speak out, no doubt, but we should speak out by reflecting God's broader concerns for justice. You see, we're, we're, we're accused of hypocrisy sometimes because we're rather selective about what we speak about. We might, for example, be very angry at gay marriage, but very quiet about white-collar fraud. And, mm. and okay, we should speak out and, and speak out, perhaps, uh, about gay marriage because there are significant biblical issues there. But, hey, let's, let, let's be broad brush in our um, uh, speaking out, not just simply coming across as very angry people who are just indulging our own secret um, uh, political prejudices and so on. Uh, so I, I, I think when we do speak out, we've got to do so with grace and wisdom. Um, I think some people who want us to speak out might want us to make strident speeches telling others how bad they are and how right we are. But honestly, uh, I, I, I don't want the church to speak out in that way. If we come across as, as, as angry people who really figure we're good and you're not good and what's wrong with the world and how terrible you all are, Yes, we've spoken out, we've made a speech, we've made a, we've made a public statement, but for what good? People are just going to put us further into the pigeonhole we're already in and say, well, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's, we, that's what we'd expect you to say. Yep. But if the church can speak out in a more balanced, gracious and wise and, and, and uh, disc- not, not discreet, but a, but a more, more, more targeted way, I think it will help. But above all, Andrew, I think we speak out by being the sort of people that Jesus wants us to be. Look, if the Christian church and individual Christians are loving and caring for people who need love and care, no one is going to challenge that. No one's going to um, um, shout us down about that. We get shouted down sometimes because we make simplistic statements about things we don't know much about, um, or we're politically partisan, or we speak out in a sort of a, what sounds to be an arrogant or moralistic um, uh, mindset. And I think quite rightly people get a little bit sick of that. So I don't think we need to have, as it were, a louder voice, but we need to have a wiser voice. You've been listening to LifeWords Q&A, and thank you so much for joining us over the past 20 minutes. It's been a pleasure. David, again, thank you for your wisdom. And if you'd like to ask David a question, now is your chance. You can email us between now and next week, lifewords at hopemedia.com. and we'd be happy to tackle your questions in the weeks to come. That's lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. And David, wishing you all the best for the next week. Thank you, Andrew. We'll do it again.